We're continuing. I'll just check if we've got time. It's fine if we don't. <laughs> oh, yeah, we've got loads of time. We're continuing with a, a series at the moment in the Minor Prophets. So if you want to turn to Habakkuk with me this morning. So Habakkuk comes after Nahum, still about two-thirds of the way through um, our old your, your Bible, sorry. So we're in the older part of the Bible, but remember uh, what we've always been saying. This is the older part of the Bible, but it is not old and defunct. It is older um, and, and filled with Jesus. The Old Testament reveals Jesus to us. There's that phrase that I've used week after week. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. We believe that all scripture is God-breathed. Uh, we read that in, 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 the new, in the newer Testament, that it's all God-breathed, that it all points us towards Jesus, and therefore we can and should expect to encounter Jesus as we read from the Old Testament. And what we've been doing over a period of time is working uh, through these minor prophets, and we've been doing it a book a week, a, a book a week. Uh, it's too quick, I confess that, but um, you know, there are some great preachers in history past. There are some great preachers today who go verse by verse. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was an incredible preacher, so I'm told. I've read a little bit of his stuff, heard a little bit of him on tape. But he took about 11 or 12 years to preach through the book of Romans. A guy went on a holiday for six months or on a work secondment for six months, and he came back, and they were in the next verse. Six months later, and, 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 and so that is one way of preaching, that is one way of studying, but uh, kind of Southside's tradition, if you like, and we have a tradition whether you like it or not, but is that we don't go verse by verse. What we, we do is, is at times we all take themes, at other times we'll take big chunks of scripture and we'll say, you know, God, what are you saying to us through this? And so if you haven't read Habakkuk, if you haven't read the Minor Prophets, then my encouragement to you would be go away and read them. Uh, and you need to do that for two reasons. Firstly, because God will speak to you through them when you read them. And secondly, because then you'll be able to keep me accountable. Because the second, second thing that I want to say is this. I, you know, we talked earlier about how we are disciples on a journey. Well, I am one of those disciples on a journey. I am not. Authority does not rest in me, okay? Much as I might sometimes wish it did. Authority does not reside in me. Authority is Jesus. Jesus is authority, and we are seeking to encounter him through Scripture, and we do that in the context of walking together as community. So go away, read Habakkuk. By next week, read Zephaniah. By the week after, read Haggai. Then we'll have a brief pause because we'll have the kids' service and Christmas Eve and stuff like that, and then we'll finish up um, at the very beginning of the new year. Um, so be reading these books. Be asking, Jesus, what are you saying to me? How do I see you in them? And what I want to do is I'm just going to read the first few verses of Habakkuk, then I'm going to read uh, the last few verses, and then we'll have a brief think about some of the many things that, um, that, that might impact us and help us as we, as we open these ancient texts. So this is what it says in Habakkuk chapter 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And then God says to Habakkuk, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. 
I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dust. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own strength is their God. And then if you turn over with me to chapter 3 of Habakkuk and the very last part of Habakkuk's prayer, and he says this, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights for the director of music on my stringed instruments. I just thought I'd read that last bit, because isn't it cool how like, the Bible also has practical advice? You get to the end of something so profound, and then he says, oh, by the way, this is for the director of music, and you can play it along with your violin or something like that. So there you are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, it is indeed living and active as we pray uh, weekly, I think, at the moment, Lord. We ask that you would direct us to Jesus, that you would point us to, to knowing him better, to walking more closely with him, to, to rejoicing in our salvation. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. And show us, Lord. Teach us, Lord. Take my words and make them yours. Amen. I wonder, I was thinking about my view of heaven, my view of God when I was a child, and, and, uh, and it, com- it comes from a book. I don't even know like, where it, you know, exactly why I was thinking on such things as a youngster, but my, my picture of God was this. Jesus was lying on top of this big block up here, okay? And, and, then they, and it was on the top of a mound, and around the mound were all of these guys with swords, and they were all there, and they were asleep or dead or something like that. And, and that was my picture of what heaven was. And, and I realized that my picture of heaven came from King Arthur and the Knights of his Round Table, okay? And so, like, King Arthur was asleep or dead, I can't remember, uh, on the top, and all of the knights were, uh, were kind of lying around this mound, and I, I mean, my parents are there shaking their head, they probably don't even know what book it was, maybe I imagined it, who knows, but, but, but anyway, they're there, and that was my picture of heaven, God is asleep, and everybody else is asleep, or maybe even God is dead, and everybody is asleep or dead around him, and of course, that highlights the problem straight away, what is the big problem in my picture of heaven there? Oh, 
God is dead. Thank goodness. I was like, oh, no, if nobody gets that, then we have really got to start all over again. The problem with my picture of heaven was that God was dead, or at best, God was asleep. Jesus was up there just taking a kip, and everybody else was around him doing the same. And yet the biblical picture of heaven is not that, is it? The biblical picture is of Jesus on his throne with people around him constantly doing what? Praising. The biblical picture of heaven is that Jesus reigns on his throne now and that the multitude of people who have already been gathered up and all of the heavenly beings and they're around the throne and they're going, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the earth is full of his glory. And, 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 and it's just this constant praise party. And I'm sorry if that puts you off going to heaven, if that puts you off going into new creation, the idea of always singing. But can I tell you, there'll be no mistakes in the music. The music will always sound beautiful. The person next to you won't Albert, you know, it's just going to be, it's going to be praise as it really should be. And it is going to be praise and it is going to be worship and it is going to be life like we could never imagine. And the reason that I want to start off with that this morning is because there's been something that I've been wanting to say for at least the last three weeks and I've managed to keep it in and just, and, but I sense that this is the week to, to start with this point. And the point is this, we need to have a bigger vision of who God is. And we need to have a vision of God that is so big that if you can ever say my vision or my picture of God is this, that straight away you go, actually, that cannot be true because it is mine. As soon as you think you can picture God, other than we see him in Jesus, as soon as you think that you can picture what new creation looks like, as soon as you think that you understand God, let me say this, you need a bigger vision of God. And I believe that throughout the minor prophets, what we are seeing as these people bring their, their messages, as they bring messages of challenge, as they bring messages of rebuke, as they wrestle, which is what we're going to think about briefly with Habakkuk this morning, these people have a big vision of God. Micah, uh, in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 1, this is what it says. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. And then Micah says this, the mountains melt beneath melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. Micah has a big vision of who God is. Micah has a vision of God coming along and everything else shaking and crumbling and melting because his God is that big. In Nahum chapter 2, so Nahum who we were looking at last week, chapter 2 it says this, the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. And then, uh, sorry, just let me make sure I've got the right verses here. I don't seem to have. Sorry, my mistake. It says this, chapter 1. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. And then, and then Nahum paints this picture for God, of God for us. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm is, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and it dries up. He makes all the rivers run dry, Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in time of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he'll make an end of Nineveh. What a massive vision of God. 
That's huge, isn't it? So like, like, so often we think about, or we talk about, and, and this isn't wrong, but we might talk about how Jesus is our friend, or God is our father, um, and oh, the spirit is our comforter or our sustainer. We might use words like these, and yet what we see captured in Nahum, and what we see captured in Micah, is that God is so much bigger than any single word might be able to use to explain him. And, and that isn't to say that Nahum is saying, and then that's the end of God. It's not that he's saying that. It's like when Paul lists uh, spiritual gifts in the New Testament. Paul isn't saying, and that's the end of spiritual gifts. He just gives us a whole load of them. And and it's not saying that that list is all there is. There's so much more that God wants for his people. And God is so much bigger than any of these pictures. But the point is this. We need to have a massive vision of God. I can remember having a conversation with somebody going back a good number of years. And they, they were disappointed with God. They were disappointed with how God was, um, with how God was answering or not answering their prayers. And they said this to me. They said, "I think I need to make my prayers more realistic." And I just thought, "No, don't try and make your prayers more realistic. Make your prayers so big." That only this God, the vision of whom you can never capture in your mind, you can never capture in your words, that only that God can answer them. And I believe that's what we see as we look at Habakkuk. He says, uh, Habakkuk has this idea that God is the only one who can possibly answer his prayers. Because in chapter 1 of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is complaining about the injustice that he sees. Now, the injustice that Habakkuk is talking about here isn't injustice out with the believing community. This isn't him saying, oh, isn't Judah fantastic? Because uh, isn't Judah fantastic and isn't everybody else terrible? What Habakkuk is saying is there is so much injustice in Judah. There is so much in Judah that is going against what God wants for it. And and Habakkuk is there and he's saying, uh, how long, O Lord, are you going to make me look at this? How long are you going to make me uh, keep on looking at these people who are doing things that are out with what you want for them, that are out with the fullness of life that you can bring or that you want to bring? Uh, and, And what is implied in that is this, that Habakkuk thinks God can answer. Habakkuk wouldn't be asking, Habakkuk wouldn't be praying this if he didn't believe that God could answer it. And, and also what we see in this is that Habakkuk is persistent in prayer. And this is kind of like, there's so many things in Habakkuk that I don't think it's going to be an overall, perhaps, flow to it. It's more like just kind of some starters for ten sort of thing as we seek to walk with Jesus this morning. But the first thing is this, Habakkuk is so persistent in prayer, he says, how long, O Lord, must I call for help? It's like David in Psalm 13, where he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? You know, the, Habakkuk means wrestle. That's what his name means. And so what we have here is actually a real wrestling with God. And Habakkuk's first wrestle is this, how long? How long, O Lord, will you not answer? But the incredible two things about that are that firstly, Habakkuk believes that God can answer. It's just a matter of time. And the second thing is this, that Habakkuk was persistent in his prayer. I can remember when I I came to faith, the pastor of the church that I was going to, and he was saying, 
he said something like to me like, oh, you know, you couldn't, he probably put it much more nicely, but he, he basically challenged me to pray for somebody every day. And I probably lasted for about a week. And then suddenly a day goes by and you realize I haven't done it. Or a week goes by and you realize I haven't done it. Or how many of us have tried to be persistent in seeking God through Scripture and say, do you know what, this, week, this year I'm going to read my Bible every day and I'm going to ask God to speak to me through it. I'm going to just scribble something down. And how many of you get to the end of a week, the end of a day, the end of the year and go, oh, sugar, I didn't do it. And then how many of you go, but I'm desperate to hear from God. Oh, wouldn't it be brilliant to know which way God wants me to go? Wouldn't it be brilliant to know uh, what plan God has for my life? Wouldn't it be amazing to, to see God using me in different ways and in different areas and with different people? And yet what we see in Habakkuk, even at the very beginning of his moan, of his lament, is that he is persistent in prayer and he is persistent in seeking God. Not only do we see that though, but if we flick over into chapter 2, we also see that despite what God says to him, and we'll come to that in a moment, despite what God says, which Habakkuk doesn't particularly like, and despite the persistence that he has to show as he prays to God and as he seeks God for answers, as he wrestles with God, Habakkuk consistently positions himself to hear in chapter 2, the verse, first verse of chapter 2, it says this, I will, stand what, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am given to my complaint, to this complaint. Habakkuk expects God to answer. But he doesn't just think that he can wait. He doesn't just think that he can go on willy-nilly while he waits for this answer. Habakkuk positions himself to hear from God. He, you know, the, the, the imagery that he uses is standing on the ramparts. It's like in Ezekiel when you have the watchmen who are looking out and they see something that is coming. And, and, and what Habakkuk's picture of, it, he wasn't literally probably stood in a tower. He wasn't literally stood on some ramparts. But what it's saying is he got himself into a place that was good to hear from God. If you want to see a great view, you go up the Carrick Hills on the one day of the year when you can actually see a great view from up there. But if you want to see a great view, you get up high. If you want to see something, you, you, you take a, a raised perspective on it and you look out on it. I, I wish that all of you got an opportunity to stand up here on a, on a, on a Sunday in one of our gatherings at some point because it's brilliant. It's brilliant seeing all of the faces, some of you smiling, some of you sleeping. Um, but it's, you know, it's an, the sleepers have just woken up. Um, but, but, it's brilliant to have that raised perspective. And essentially what Habakkuk is saying is this, I am raising myself up, not raising myself up as in bigging myself up, I am raising myself up to a height so that I, can, so that I am in the optimal place to hear from God. And the challenge that I hear, and I hear this, the challenge for me in this, and this might challenge some of you as well, is, is that so often I am not in the optimal place to hear from God. So often it's like, I, I'm not even just on the floor, I'm crawling around on the, on the floor, I'm crawling around under the chairs, and I'm going, God, why aren't I hearing from you? And he says, well, you're not on the ramparts, you've not raised yourself up, you have not positioned yourself in such a way. How do we position ourselves? Well, we position ourselves through worship, we position ourselves through prayer, we position ourselves through silence, we position ourselves through reading scripture. 
If anybody ever comes to me and says, do you know what? I'm not hearing from God. If I ever go to somebody and say, I'm not hearing from God. Do you know what? My first question is this. How are you positioning yourself? How are you raising yourself up in order to hear from him? Because we believe this. That picture that I had of a child, as a child of God is wrong because God is not silent or dead. He is always active. He is always working. He is always speaking. Jesus is the living word. And so that tells me this, when you don't hear from God, and when I don't hear from God, it's not because God is silent. It's because we're not positioned. As we look at Habakkuk, we see that he was both persistent in his prayer, expectant that God would answer, and positioned in order to best hear what God is saying to him. I simply want to ask those questions. Are you persistent? Am I persistent? Am I expectant? Are we expectant? And are we positioned? And then when we are, this happens. God answers prayer. Amen? God answers prayer. But... He doesn't always answer it as we would like it to be answered. Because Habakkuk says, look, I see all of these people around about me. um, People who are meant to be following you. People who are meant to be walking with you. And they are being unjust. Again, the crime, the the sin of of Judah or Israel. I'll call them Israel probably just for now. But it's Judah. It's that southern nation. It's those who have been left behind after the northern kingdom have been taken into exile. The, the, The sin of Judah is injustice. The sin of Judah is how they are treated. Uh, wrongly treating the poor. It's, it's how they are not doing all of those things which reflect God's heart. And so Habakkuk goes, how long, O Lord, until you're going to do it? He essentially says, what are you going to do about it? How holy God are you going to deal with this people? And God says, I know how I'm going to deal with it, Habakkuk. And here's how. I am going to send Babylon. Okay? Habakkuk, I, you know, we were praying something this morning before the service, and I told God what the answer to the prayer looked like. Do you ever do that? You know, you're there and you're saying, God, um, I would like you to... Actually, I'll tell you what the prayer was. We were praying for Brian. It's Brian's birthday tomorrow. And, 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 we, and I was just praying for him because I love Brian. And I know that Brian is passionate about seeing people become Christians. So I told God what he could give Brian for his birthday. That was good of me, wasn't it? Because I know Brian better than God. I said to God, look, do you know what Brian would like for his birthday? Brian would like some people to become Christians at our morning gathering this morning. And you could give that to Brian for his birthday. And that's kind of like, in a a sense, what Habakkuk was doing. He was saying, look, all of these people are being unholy, God. And you need to deal with it. But you need to deal with it how I want you to deal with it. And then God says, well, here's how I am going to deal with it. I'm going to send Babylon. And, the, and, and what that tells us is this, that God doesn't always answer our prayers as we would expect. Because there is absolutely no way that, that Habakkuk, the faithful Jew living in Judah at this time, expected God to send the heathen Babylonians in order to teach them a lesson. Okay, that's like, that's, that, that is akin to uh, God sending North Korea to teach us a lesson. How many of us might entertain the possibility that God would do that? Probably not that many of us. And yet the teaching of Habakkuk is that, that God in his 
overarching control sometimes allows people who don't know him. There is no suggestion that Babylon know what they are doing. There is no suggestion that Babylon are the willing doers of God's, uh, God's word. And yet the Bible is absolutely clear. Babylon, in this instance, when they take Judah into exile, are exercising God's discipline on Judah. That's so powerful. I was reminded a few years back, we, I was playing in a, a beach rugby tournament, and, uh, and we won. <laughs> and we won a whole load of money. And uh, I was so excited about spending that money that night. I divvied up my portion of it, okay? I was like, great, I get 30 quid, and I'm going to have a takeaway tonight. And then my heathen teammates came up to me and said, uh, Coxie, we've decided that we should give all of that money to that charity that your church support in Bulgaria. I was like, what? <laughs> you don't know Jesus and you're doing Jesus' work and I'm meant to know Jesus and I wanted a takeaway tonight. Okay? But, and the point is this, Balaam's ass spoke to him, didn't he? And, and, the point, but, and so what I'm saying is that we must not close ourselves off from the fact that God uses the most unlikely people to bring about his purpose. That God uses people who we would never dream that he might use. Babylon are not good. Habakkuk makes that clear. God's answer to Habakkuk makes that clear. Babylon are going to take Judah into exile and they're going to think that they did it because they are strong. They are going to think that they did it because they are in some way the mighty military power. They are probably going to think that their gods with a small g enabled them to do it. And yet the truth is this, that isn't why it happened. It happened because God allowed it to happen and because God can use anything and anyone to get his message across and bring his purpose about. Will we be persistent in prayer, expectant in prayer, positioned in prayer, but not so arrogant as to think that we can tell God how and who he is going to use to answer his prayer? Because the problem for Habakkuk in relation to Babylon was this. Habakkuk thought that Babylon were worse than Judah. Habakkuk thought that the sin of the Babylonian people was so much worse than the sins of the Israelites. He says in verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? What Habakkuk is saying is Babylon are wicked. Babylon is built on blood. Babylon is built on uh, on conquering Babylon is built on killing other people and taking what isn't theirs. Why, God, are you going to use that evil people to destroy or to punish those people who are kind of evil but not as evil as them? And, and that, is, that is an incredibly, you know, I, I hate kind of, and at times I use it and I hit myself for it afterwards but the idea of worldly values because we're all full of worldly values and it's like oh in the world this and in the churches and all of that sort of thing and I I don't want to go down that line particularly but that is an incredibly worldly way of looking at things isn't it to say well look they're really bad and they're just kind of like okay so it's like so we have this way of grading sin we have this way of saying well that's much worse than that and then that's worse than that and so you know like you have un 
completely unforgivable crime. So, you know, abusing a child would be like the criminal's absolute worst view of crime. And then you might have murderers, and but murder might not be as important if you were defending yourself or if you were, you know, on however it is. But we grade things. And even we, do, I'm not just talking about criminals grading things, because then we continue along the line. Our line that says, well, they're worse than them, they're worse than them, they're worse than them. And then we're just here because we only do dot, dot, dot. I only fiddle a bit of my tax. I only uh, mistreat the poor a bit of the time. I, I only do whatever it might happen to be. And yet what God is saying, I believe, what, what, or what is communicated to us through this, is that sin is sin is sin. Habakkuk is there and he's despairing at Judah's sin. But then when God uses Babylon to punish Judah's sin... Habakkuk goes, how come you're using them? They're so much worse than us. And yet the the truth is this. All sin dehumanizes us. All sin cuts us off from God. All sin is a violation of what God wants for humanity, of what God wants for creation. And yet yet it is so easy for us as followers of Jesus to take on Habakkuk's attitude to sin, which says, well, so long as I'm not doing that, or so long as I'm not as bad as them, Habakkuk challenges us, I believe, to change our view of sin and to recognize that all sin cuts off, all sin dehumanizes. And that whether it is the sin of Babylon, of Judah, whether it is the sin in the church or out with the church, we all desperately need the grace that we only receive in Jesus. As I said, Habakkuk means to wrestle. And Habakkuk starts off, you know, and as I say, read through the whole of Habakkuk, but he starts off complaining at God. And isn't it good to know that you can complain to God? Yeah? If we want to be a biblical people, then sometimes you're allowed a bit of complaining. Sometimes you're allowed a bit of moaning. God, what's going on here? Explain it to me. But then what we so often see in scripture is that wrestling leads to worship. <laughs> that the fear that Habakkuk has at the beginning as he looks at this sin actually turns around to faith. We see that in Psalm 13 as well. I read the opening verses of Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? But this is what it says at the end of Psalm 13. But I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. Habakkuk complains. Habakkuk doesn't understand the answer that God gives to him. Why are you going to use Babylon to do that to us? And yet he finishes with these words. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes On the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stores, yet, this is Habakkuk's but, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. And I feel like that brings us back quite nicely and and it wasn't planned actually in this way. But it brings us back to what we started off by saying, you know, in relate after we heard from from Kay and from Ian, you know, some of us see healing, some of us see periodic uh, process healing, 
Some of us don't see healing yet. But I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Because whether you see it or not, whether you see an end to the oppression or not, whether you see an end to the injustice or not, God is still God and he is still working his purpose out. Last week I said that one of the brilliant things in Nahum was that we see, we saw exactly how that city uh, wall crumbled. You know, it was the water, the flood and all of that. If you were here, if you weren't, then, uh, then ask me at another point. Not trying to go into it now. But we saw, it was so encouraging to read that actually the prophecy of Nahum came true in the specifics, not just in the broad spiritual side, but Nahum specifically prophesied and specifically said that's how that city is going to be taken and that is what happened. And we, know, and we see that again in Habakkuk. In the, in the second chapter of Habakkuk, when Habakkuk says, well, what about Babylon? God answers about Babylon. He says, listen, I'm going to take care of Babylon as well. And what happens, if you don't know the story, is that Israel does get taken. Judah does get taken into captivity in Babylon. But the faithful, it says in Habakkuk uh, chapter 1, about the righteous living by... Anyway, it says about the righteous living by faith. And, and, And what happens is that Judah go into Babylon, but we see the righteous in Judah thriving even though they're in Babylon. We see Daniel, don't we? We see Daniel, we see him raising, rising. Okay, so we see him. He is being punished. He is being taken into Babylon. And yet the truth of God is this. He is going to protect the faithful. He is going to, he is going to look after the faithful. And then we see that ultimately Babylon do get it because God raises up Cyrus and, and Cyrus, the king of Persia, takes over Babylon and, and, and takes the Israelites back into Jerusalem. And we read about that in scripture as well. We read that this prophecy is true, not only because we believe it by faith, but because we see historically that it happened. Isn't that amazing? But it doesn't matter, not for every Judah height, not for every Israelite did it work out well. But the truth is this, that just like it doesn't work out well for all of us in the here and now, we look forward to a day when Jesus is going to make everything right. And between now and then we can say, healed or not, progressive healing or not, totally healed or not, yet I will rejoice in God my Savior. Some of the most moving times in my life have been of sitting with these guys, of sitting with other people in this church family and in other places who can echo those words, yet I will rejoice in God my Savior. Though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vine, Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the storms, yet we will rejoice in God our Savior. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to have a big vision of who you are? And every time we think that we have that vision sorted, would you challenge us to take you out of the box that we have just made? And to go for more. We thank you that in Habakkuk, in Nahum, in Micah, that throughout scripture we see women and men who have such a big vision of who you are. 
who have such a big vision of what you can do. And Father, we pray that you would help us to to be more like them. Lord, we pray that when we wrestle, it would lead to worship, that when we're fearful, it would ultimately lead to us having more faith. We pray that when prayer is answered, we would rejoice, and when prayer isn't answered, we would still rejoice. Hard as it is, would you help us to walk daily, faithfully, with you, because you are worthy no matter what the circumstances of our life would dictate. Father, would you continue to be with us as we celebrate? Would you continue to be with us as we sing? And as we go from this place, may we take that big vision, may we pray persistently, big prayers, believing that you answer, positioning ourselves to hear from you. And as we do these things, would you use us for your praise and glory? 